If you have your Bible, please open up to the book of Mark, book of Mark chapter 14. Today we'll be in verses 12 to 31. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 31. If you do not have a Bible, you can raise your hand and an usher will give you one. You can use it today. If you don't own one, you can keep it. We would love for you to. Please read it, apply it to your life. As you turn to Mark chapter 14, I wonder if you've ever considered what makes Christianity different from other religions. I often talk to non-believing friends in Charleston. You may be one of those friends. Um, I'm glad you're here with us if you are still questioning Christianity, if you're not sure. And this may be a question you have. You may say, there are a lot of good religions. There are all these that are kind of similar. They, they have some sacrifices. They, they meet on certain days of the week. They have certain prayers. So what is it that actually makes Christianity any different? And that actually gives us the title of today's sermon, which is, The Lamb Makes All the Difference. And if you're a Christian and you think, I already know the fullness of what that means, I would ask you to pause and wait and see what this passage shows us about Christianity, about the Lamb. And if you're here today and you're not sure about Christianity, I think you're here on a great day to hear a lot of the core of what it is that we believe as Christians. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 31. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12 and read all the way through the passage. Please follow along silently. On the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. This is the word of God. It's no secret that I like to preach, and I often say, oh, I love this passage, oh, I love this passage. But I'm not lying to you when I say this one is very core to what Christians even believe. 
The Lord's Supper, as it's sometimes called, communion is sometimes called, depending on your background, uh, some may know it as the Eucharist, is such a great participation in the gospel that we can see and actively be part of, and we find what it means and how it was instituted here in this very passage. In the first several verses, 12 through 16, we find preparation. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, that means bread that isn't going to rise, the flat kind of bread. If you're like me, you really like that kind of bread. I could eat lots of it. When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, that's a really important little blurb there by Mark. If you're just looking for a little note, something that may have not jumped out to you, I want you to make sure you catch that. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Now, I was told by a good friend who looked over this passage for me before I preached it. He said, make sure that I offer this as a trigger warning to vegans. So I know we have several in the house. We do sacrifice the Passover lamb. I'm not saying you have to eat meat. I'm just saying that Jesus was sinless and he did. That's all I'm saying. People are mad. People are ready to throw their vegetables at me because that's all they have. I didn't even plan that one. Okay. When they sacrifice the Passover lamb, this day, this first day of unleavened bread, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? If you don't know what the Passover is, this is really important. Because this is a weird story as it is. And the Passover is something that's just being assumed by Mark. If you've been with us through Mark, we've been going through Mark for a while, and Mark is just very matter-of-fact. This happened, this happened, immediately this happened, boom, that's the whole story. Some of you may be ones who tell longer stories. I'm not going to make any eye contact, but stop nudging people, it distracts them. Mark tells short stories, so he just assumes that you know this major thing, the Passover. And the truth is, even Jewish people today practice this meal. You see, the Passover goes all the way back to the second book of the Bible. Uh, One good friend in this congregation would say part of the first book, but kind of the second part of that first book. Shout out to Pete Link. Um, In Exodus chapter 12, we find the Passover. And you see what had happened in Exodus is the Israelites had been in Egypt. Genesis tells you how they got there, so you can go read all 50 chapters of that to find that out. But a Pharaoh arises who does not know the Hebrews. He does not know Israel. So they actually enslave them, and they make them work, and they make them build, and it's a horrible captivity. Some of you may know or be somewhat familiar with the story, even if you're not a Christian, because maybe you saw the great cartoon, The Prince of Egypt. Moses comes on the scene. God sends Moses, and after lots of events, Moses comes back and says, let my people go, and the ten plagues come. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I've heard about that. Sounds familiar. When they get to the tenth plague... Things are very serious. Now, to me, they would have been serious before because I don't need frogs and boils and all kinds of nastiness like that. But the last plague was to be that the firstborn in the land would be killed. Every firstborn male male in every household would be killed. The only way the, the firstborn male in your house wouldn't be killed is if you took a lamb and sacrificed it and took the blood and put it on your doorpost. Now, I'm missing a lot of details. I'm covering lots of Bible here, but this is generally what's going on, okay? Then they had to take the lamb inside and eat it all. They weren't supposed to leave any leftovers and eat it all. And that night, as the Lord came into Egypt, he would pass over those who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. When the 
Passover meal is celebrated, even by Jewish people today, this is what they're remembering. They're recalling how the Lord saved them out of Egypt because after this final plague, Pharaoh finally lets them go. Now, there's a lot more to the story than that. You can go read it. But that is where Passover comes from. So when Jews, which Jesus was raised Jewish and his disciples are all Jewish, when they are observing this, they're remembering, this is how God has saved us from Egypt. They're remembering the suffering that happened in Egypt. And they're remembering that God brought them out. If you didn't know, that's why the book of Exodus is called Exodus. Because it's their exodus out of Egypt. So Jesus gives, them, gives the disciples a command. And it's actually pretty similar to a command that happened back in Mark 11. Not really sure why Mark uses a lot of the same phrases. It's kind of an odd thing, but what it shows us is that Jesus knows more than a normal person. Okay? Jesus obviously has knowledge of things and potentially even power that he's working here. We don't know if this is something he worked out ahead of time, like one-on-one talking to people, or if this is some kind of God thing that's just happening and he just knows it's happening. We don't get told all of that. But he just tells them to go to this really odd thing, go into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. That doesn't seem weird to us. But typically, women carried the jars of water at the time. So why is this man even doing that? And then, follow him. All right, Jesus, make us be stalkers. Creepy. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? If, we, if Jesus just like told us this today, half of you would leave. He'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. That's weird. We don't go to talk to people. We don't go talk to people at their houses. Jesus was going and having them find a large room where they could make preparations for them to observe the Passover because this was going to be a major moment in world history, honestly, not just the history of Christianity. Now, after this preparation, we actually find prediction. And I'm actually going to not only look at verses 17 through 21 for these predictions, we're going to look at the last bit too, verses 27 through 31, because once again, if you've been with us in Mark, he uses another sandwich. And if you don't know what that is, that means he tells you one thing, he gives you a story, and he tells you something that looks like the thing before, so it makes a sandwich. So we're going to take the pieces of bread from the sandwich and look at them together. So it's a prediction. Verses 17 through 21, we find a prediction of betrayal. It says, when evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Understand, the Passover was a meal you took typically with family or definitely those close to you. So it wasn't just something for strangers. If there was a foreigner present, there were all these other things they had to do to be part of Passover that are also laid out in the Old Testament. Typically, this was something only with those people who were closest to you. So it's a big deal if you're having a family meal and suddenly you look around the table and say, one of you is going to betray me. Some of you are like, no, that happens in my house every day. This was a bigger deal. They weren't just going to like not record their show or something. Jesus is saying, you're going to turn me over that I'll be killed. He says, they began to be distressed and say to him one by one, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. It's thought that Mark includes that specific detail of dipping the bread in the bowl because again, it shows this intimacy. This is someone close to him, someone that's been with him, someone that knew him well and that he knew well. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. This verse is 
a really cool theological verse because it holds up simultaneously God's divine sovereignty and reign over all things, working all things together. Notice there it says, just as it is written about him. So scripture will be fulfilled. But it also says, woe to that man. Man's responsibility is also upheld in the exact same verse. That's a question a lot of people bring to Christianity. They're like, if God's all-powerful, then how are we responsible for any of our choices? In Scripture, it is always that, yes, God is divinely sovereign and working all things for the good of those who love him, who is called according to his purpose, and we are responsible before God for our moral choices. Now, you may say, I don't believe in Christianity. If He's going to have to give me a pass. We're going to get to that. Don't worry. Here, here, He's not just saying, you're going to betray me and then things are going to get better. He's calling out the one who will betray him. And that's the end of his story. The betrayer of Jesus. Judas Iscariot. It's a hard thing to hear. It's a very real part of the story. On the back half of the sandwich, we have a similar prediction from Jesus. It says, then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away. Hi, welcome to Sunday at Radiant. All of you will fall away. Are you encouraged? No, they weren't either. He even quotes scripture to them. He quotes Zechariah 13.7. I make jokes sometimes that when people pull out a book like Zechariah, you know they're serious. Jesus here, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Notice what he says in verse 28, because this could easily be overlooked. But after I have risen... I will go ahead of you to Galilee. He just predicted his resurrection again. Okay? I just want to throw that out. That Jesus not only knew that he was going to die, but he knew that he was going to overcome sin and death and that he would return. Peter, of course it's Peter, right? Peter's always the one who speaks up. I have been often in my life related to Peter. Peter told him, if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, Mark's gospel is the only one that says rooster crows twice. There are a lot of commentators who think that Peter helped Mark write this gospel, and that's why there would be such a detail, because Peter would remember. It's not just that the rooster would crow. Jesus tells him, before it crows twice, that's pretty specific, And to say it's going to be the same night is kind of insulting if you're trying to say, no, 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 I'm with you. we got unity, right? No matter what. I got your back. Jesus says no. But Peter kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Notice it keeps using that, they all. They're all saying, no, 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 Jesus, I'm with you. I'm with you no matter what. I couldn't help but relate to that so much personally and think that we often in the American church do that often where we'll say, Jesus, I will die for you and yet we do not live for him. Our day-to-day lives don't show any truth to our insistence that we won't fail. But this one's a little different. Remember in the first part of the sandwich, you just had him saying, this one will betray me. It would be better for him to have not been born. Here, Jesus told them, you're going to fall away. But then he gave 
in verse 28 that, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. He's not just predicting that he'll be resurrected, but he's predicting that he will be with them after the resurrection. So though they're going to deny him, he is already seeing redemption is going to play out, and he's proclaiming that to them. So these are some major predictions that really tie into a big part coming out here. Now, I want to pause for a second before we move to this 22 through 26 section. Because I think that interaction with the disciples, where he's predicting they're going to deny him, specifically Peter, speaks to us on a level that we don't like to interact with even to ourselves. Very few of us like to take a look at our sinfulness. Very few of us like to admit that we have been and often are an active rebellion against God. In fact, we'll talk about sin. We'll talk about injustice. We'll talk about suffering in the world, that things are bad, and it's all out there, right? And if this sermon just talked about, oh man, the world really needs to get it right, I'd get some amens and we'd be all riled up and be like, yeah, we're the church. Amen, they just, they're all just messed up. The problem here is that this specifically shows Jesus talking to those closest to him And it makes us see that sin isn't just out there. It's in here. It's in this room. It's in my heart. And it's in yours. Now, what will be the difference here between the betrayer and the deniers? And the finality of it is going to be grace which is revealed in faith and repentance. But what I think is the core, the meat of this sandwich that Mark has made, the thing that he gave us an introduction to with the preparation, is where we find the provision. We find provision in 22 through 26. As they're taking the meal, it says, As they were eating, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Now, I've got to give you a little more than that before we even read the next part. Because we talked about this is something taken with the family. This is something to remember what happened in Egypt when God brought his people out. And typically, even today, when people observe this supper, the eldest male in the room will preside over and will stand up and lead through four phases of the meal. And when you get to the bread, what you're supposed to say is, this is the bread of affliction. Our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. You take the bread and you remember their suffering. And you remember that God brought them out of it. So when Jesus stands up, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to them, and he says, take it, this is my body. He's saying, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering. He's pointing to his suffering at the cross. He is supplanting the famous exodus out of Egypt and saying this is now the central part of salvation in God. Everyone in the room would have been stunned. I don't even know that Jesus would have been the eldest. Certainly he was seen as the teacher, so perhaps it wasn't weird that he stood up. But as soon as he didn't say, this is the bread of affliction, they all had to kind of perk up. And when he said, take it, this is my body, I can't imagine what's going on in their heads. But they're all understanding. 
He's talking about suffering. He's talking about affliction. Then he took the cup. After giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day, that day, when I drink it in the new or new in the kingdom of God. He takes the bread, says, This is my body. He takes the cup, and he says, This is my blood of the covenant. First of all, if that's new to you, if you've never been around that, that probably sounds weird. Here, drink my blood. We don't think that the the cup actually represents or becomes actual blood, but it does 100% convey and represent Jesus' blood and our partaking with him. And he gives it to all at the table. And he says, it's my blood of the covenant. In Exodus 24, after Israel was brought out of Egypt, they're then given the law at Sinai. And in Exodus 24, Moses is establishing the covenant with people, and they do this thing that would sound really weird to us. They kill all the animals, and he takes the blood, and he spatters it on the people. And he says, this is the covenant God has with you. So I'm going to go get some blood and just start tossing it out over the crowd, and we'll see how y'all do today. No? Okay. Jesus does not say this represents the blood of the covenant that Moses made. He says, this is my blood of a new covenant. It's not the blood that will be splattered on the people. It's the blood that will be splattered on the cross. The righteous blood that will be attributed to all who will have faith in him and repent of sin. Notice it says, which is poured out for many. This is likely a reference to Isaiah 53, um, a a famous passage of the suffering servant, talking about that he is giving his life for another. It also calls back to the new covenant Um, that we're told about in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. The first reference, where he's calling back to Isaiah 53, or the first reference here where he's talking about the new covenant, is reminding us of that first exodus. The second reference, though, is actually pointing us to a new exodus. He he intentionally says, this is the blood of my covenant, to call them back and say, this was the old exodus. And now he's saying, this is the new exodus promised by the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so on and so forth. Jesus is telling us that God isn't just bringing people out of physical slavery in Egypt, that he's bringing us out of bondage to sin and into communion with him forever. Now, folks, you've already forgotten I can tell. You've already forgotten the title of the sermon, the key here. I told you at the very beginning, the lamb makes all the difference. Remember back in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Then we see them taking the Passover in verses 22 to 26. But I don't see a lamb. There's no mention of passing the Passover lamb, which would be an integral part of the Passover meal. Some would say, well, it's supposed to be sacrificed later in the day. If that is even the case, Jesus is still saying the same thing. He's saying, I am the lamb. There's no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table. 
He is here to be sacrificed, his blood to be shed to cover the sins even of those who will deny him at the table. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says it this way, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Verse 25 says, Truly I tell you, I'll no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This points us to Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb. A beautiful time when the people of God are finally united with Christ fully and forever. Not theoretically, not theologically only, but physically present with Him forever. And it's a celebration. You can read Revelation 19. It's a big party. And that's what he's pointing to. He says, I won't drink this again until I'm drinking it new with you in the kingdom. So not only is he saying we look back and I'm instituting now, but we're looking forward to something awesome that is ahead that we live in hope of and in light of. And Christian, if yesterday was awful, know that today we are one day closer to that marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 5, 6 describes one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. This, this one who alone is worthy to open the scroll. And just a few verses later in Revelation 5, John tells us this. Listen to this. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now if you're here and you're you're not sure why you're here. You were invited, or maybe you've been coming and you still question Christianity. You still say, I don't really get this. And you say, you were going to tell us why this was different. You said the lamb makes all the difference. Why does the lamb make the difference? Because tell me another religion where the God of that religion enters into our suffering and takes it on himself. Show me a God of another religion who sheds his blood to bring us in. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God, Jesus Christ, who Mark's been trying to show us through the whole book. The Christ, the Son of God. He's not just some Messiah, some new Moses to lead us out of Roman rule. He's not just some Messiah who's going to make things better in the American government. He is the eternal God whose kingdom will last forever and ever millennia after America is forgotten, he will reign on the throne. That's what makes this different. That's what makes Christianity different. And it's not like it's impersonal. Jesus didn't just come and say, I'm just, I'm just going to die. I'm just going to die for people. No. He knew these people at the table. He knew the ones who would deny him. 
said, his blood is poured out for many. There is some difference on this, even in the church. I know that. And some people would say, well, he, he died so that he could make all men savable. Great, that's cool if you think that. I don't think that's true. I think he died to save people effectively. I think Jesus took names to the cross. I don't think he went going, well, I hope they receive it. No. He willingly shed his blood. And if you think that's not fair or or that, that raises questions in your mind, I call you back to that revelation passage that tells us their number, the people crying out praises to the Lamb, was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. Myriads of people that no one can number. That's the many for whom Jesus died. The truth is, he died for anyone who will trust in his name and turn away from sin. And I wonder if you today have done that. Have you trusted in Jesus as your whole righteousness? We sang that earlier. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Do you trust him? Or are we still fighting for our own justification? Are we still fighting to show that we can be good enough? Because guess what? We can't. If we say that we can, if we say, well, Jesus did his part, now I've just got to do mine. If that's what you believe, then we're just like the deniers, the disciples. The glorious good news of the gospel that is still good news is that Jesus did all that must be done to save his people. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he lived as we should have, he died as we should have, and he was raised again to defeat sin and death forever. And if we will call upon his name as Savior and Lord, we will be saved. Not we might be saved. Not we can be saved. We will be saved if we call on the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a wonderful truth. And if you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, you can know him and be saved by him today. Trust in him. Place your faith in him. You can talk to me. You can talk to Philip. You can talk to any member of this church who represents Christ as an ambassador of him. How do I come to know Jesus? You trust in him and you turn away from your sin and you follow after him. Sure, there are more steps. We would love to see you baptized. We'd love to see you disciple or all those kinds of things. But today, if you will trust in him, today can be your day of salvation.